ride with me in my foul life. Podcast world, what's up? Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Coming at you from Music City, USA, Nashville, Tennessee. I am joined by one of my good friends, one of my inspirations, one of the guys that got me my start in the industry and kind of took me under his wing and took me on the road and I'm happy to have him here. His last name starts with a Z, ends with a K and he's probably best known for goose calls but a lot of people don't know that you were a competition duck caller, very celebrated, very accredited, won a lot of competitions and then we're going to get into what Fred Zink did to turn the decoy world upside down, the camouflage world, the accessory world in waterfowl hunting. Fred Zink, what's up, my brother? What's up with you, man? <laughs> hey, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? Well, it seems like it was just yesterday. It does. I, I just re- I just remember <laughs> my wife would say, uh, that guy from uh, uh, Nevada's on the phone again. I was like, that guy like, blows a goose call all the time on the phone. He's like, yeah, you want to talk to him? I was like, yeah, man, he's interesting and he's persistent. I love that. <laughs> That's a true story. I know. I could see Don saying that. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, remember, yeah. I remember one time when I, when we started running together, before you ever took me on the road, we were in Holly Grove. What was the – was, was the camp called Holly Grove? No. Oh. Tyndall's, eight, not Tyndall's Tyndall, Reservoir. But what Casco. Was, Casco. It was the town of Casco. It's just uh, east of Max, about 15 miles. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. and I remember when when you and Don were up there and we were all sitting on the rug that night and you were wrestling with Gunner when he was just a little kid. Little guy. Little guy. Now he's not so little. No, he's big. How big is he? Uh, he's six four and a half or something like that. He's big. God, just he's turn, skinny, but you don't want to mess with him. Man. Can he turn into a stud athlete? He is. I wish he had played college football. That's a different story. <laughs> he could have. He just decided he didn't want to, man. Smart decision. It probably so. But you do you know, you only live one time. Yeah, right? but you don't want to live with a We brain. make dumb decisions. Yeah, but you, at least sometimes. we're able to make decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nightly, yes. A yeah, lot nightly. of nightly. Yeah, like last night. Yeah. I had a Grant Kuyper's decision last night. That's always good. Put a little Canadian in your decision making. Yeah, and it's A. But a. We, were, we were on the rug, and you, you just had all these. You were just involved in so much at a young age to where you, you, you have to look back at it and be like, Look, like, it happened so fast. Like, literally, like, you went from, you had a little small catalog. I remember back in the day that said yeah. Zinc Outdoors on it. And you sold Tim Ground's Goose Calls, an XR1 Duck Call. And they had the, Duck Commander. Duck Commander. Yeah, Outlaw Decoys, Mossy Oak Camouflage. Final Approach, was Final it? Approach, yeah. Final Approach, you yeah. were with Ron Latch yeah. at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it just started small. It, it seems like it happened overnight, but to be honest with you, with me, it kind of started when I was a kid. You know, I just, like, always mess with stuff. My dad was a hands-on guy. He's like, you could be in the middle of nowhere. If something breaks down, you want my dad there because he can fix always. anything. Yep. And, and but you, your dad wasn't really involved in the in the catalog business. You no, were working no, with your no. dad in It was just the mentality growing up. You know, he built houses and, and all that stuff. I grew up on a farm, horse farm, and grew up in the country. So I was a country kid, and my dad built houses and did everything, excavating. So I grew up running heavy equipment, doing all that stuff. So <clears throat> as far as having tools, man, my dad was like, my dad grew up really poor. So everything he ever bought, he never sold. So it's like bomb he went off at a hardware store. There's like shit laying everywhere. You everywhere. Know? Everywhere. I remember the shops. Yeah. And uh, and so I grew up in a place like I had any, I could have built anything, you know. And so being young and growing up in the country, I didn't, we didn't have Atari. And all my cousins played Atari and did all that stuff. I was out in the countryside 
shooting anything that moved and catching anything that would bite my hook, you know, yeah. and, and making, uh, I started making decoys. I remember, I think it was like, my dad would never let me shoot a, like a 22 or a shotgun ever uh, when I was young, like hunting blackbirds or whatever. He may be shooting with a pellet gun until I was probably, I don't know, 10, 12 years old or whatever. And so I made like 300 blackbird silhouette decoys out of cardboard and my dad had this foam like when they build basements and crawl space they put this a styrofoam on the inside to insulate them so he had a bunch of it laying around so i drew out a like a cardboard stencil and i cut all these styrofoam decoys out and painted them black and put cut coat hangers and made stakes for them all that stuff I had 300 blackbird decoys and so i'd go out in our hay fields because we grew up on, i grew up on a horse farm and so they'd be like alfalfa and we had timothy hayfields or whatever and soon we uh bail them they'd be like bugs everywhere so they'd be like hundreds of blackbirds come in and so i'd go out there in the middle and i put all these decoys out there and i would sit almost like goose hunting when i was like seven eight years old and you had like what you just had like a clothes hanger like a clothes hanger hook on or whatever no I, clothes I, pin I, on I, it I, yeah i cut them and no i'd stick oh, them through the ground it's like a silhouette like blackbird a silhouette. silhouette yeah and they just come and fly, and then you only got one shot with I a only got one shot, yeah. I sit there and kill. I think uh, my cousin and I, one time, we hunted all day, almost from daylight to dark. We killed 32 blackbirds in that deal. And that's not, don't, seemingly, you could go out with a shotgun and kill 32 in one shot, you yeah. know, but with a pellet gun, that's 32 so you're So you're six <laughs> or seven years old, and you're you're <clears throat> already have this fascination yeah, with, weird. with drawing animals and luring animals. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just kind of, and... I don't know if it's the first lay down blind ever made, but it's possible. You were you were in a late. You got cameras everywhere, boy. <laughs> he don't mess around, does he? So so um, that thing's on, right? <laughs> so you you know what bay window is? You know it's like a, yeah, a big yeah, yeah. bay window yeah. surrounded, right? Yeah. So I grew up in a house that had a big bay window in it, and the problem is with the bay window, the way you don't see them anymore is they all leaked like they were a hunk of junk, right? Bad yeah. design. And so ours started leaking, so my dad took it out to put a, just a big flat picture window in. And so it's sitting there. I was thinking probably 10 years old, nine or 10. I was like, man, I could use that for a blind. So I took all the windows out of it. And so I had this round frame like this, right? It was square on the sides and I put wood in there except for the top. And so I could pick it up and I could carry it. It's pretty big. It's like it almost took my cousin and I, or a good friend of mine, we'd move it around. We'd put hay on top, so it was like a portable lay-down blind. Wait a minute, though. This, I'm not interrupting you, but at this time, you hadn't duck or goose hunted yet. Oh, uh, no, you, not this time. So your, your dad only lets you go after the, the smaller birds with the pellet Yeah, gun. yeah. He, he, so you're already developing the, what would later become the waterfowl side of it. Yeah, yeah. You're doing it with blackbirds. And yeah. now, so now you've moved on from the silhouette decoys to now you're, this is the beginnings of your first ground blind. Yeah, so I got a ground blind and I had blinds built over. Like my dad had a horse barn, so they like sparrows and we had trees everywhere. And, uh, you know, I shot a lot of birds you probably shouldn't shoot, you know, whatever, you know, songbirds or whatever. But when you're young, I just go bird hunting. Bird hunting is you get close to a bird, you shoot it. Yeah. And, uh, but the blackbirds and starlings, the man, I mean, there used to be, especially in migration in the fall, they'd be everywhere or whatever. So I started doing that. And it was, I mean, it was just, it's kind of weird that I got started doing that. And a lot of that concept and a lot of that thought process was what I did later on in life for a profession. It was kind of like long time, like 20 years later, you know, before I started making that product. When I worked at Avery Greenhead Gear, you know, in my final approach days and all that stuff is like 20 years later. But when stuff. did the waterfowling fascination start, though? Uh, when I was nine. This is when my dad took me 
first time hunting. But even even though I would, could go duck hunting with a gun, when I went home to Blackbird hunt, he would never let me shoot my shotgun. Really? No. And he never. Just, so he takes you on a goose hunt, I assume, at nine years old or was a duck? No, man. They weren't no geese around when I was that age. Really? No. A lot of people, you know, <clears throat> it's kind of weird. I was doing a podcast, uh, I think about a week ago, and uh, we're talking about this, and a lot of people talk about, you know, when was the golden years or this, that, or whatever. Uh, maybe in hunting, there was golden years later, but when it comes to Canada goose hunting, there's more Canada geese now than there's ever. This is the golden years. It is, 100%. And especially even in the industry, we talk about this or whatever. People say, you know, would you wish you just got started now or do you wish you were, you know, got started way back when and this or whatever? I don't think so. I think right now, if you look at, you just think about all the products, Chad, and some folks the listen to this podcast will totally agree and some people will be like, I don't, I don't, I don't really realize that is, you think about all the products that are out there today. This is the time to be hunting is it what is, you're saying. Man. You can, you, the Waterfowl war- has never been a more revolutionary than it has been in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, think you, you about think, when your dad was of, hunting. How the how how did they even take care of the cold temperatures back then? The clothing we have now is like oh unreal. my god, I used to freeze my ass off. Yeah, all the yeah, time like, you freeze I, your ass like off. I remember, I got uh, I used to wear Columbia, you know what I mean? There's Woolrich or whatever, but a lot of the stuff wasn't camo, right? And then Bob Allen was around. You remember Bob Allen stuff? Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. And like that's old old school. But I used to wear Carhartts. So you freeze, man. Freeze, freeze, and stay soaked. I, I remember, uh, I was probably. I don't know, 14 or 15, maybe 16 years old. My mom and dad got me a uh, Columbia outfit, uh, four-in-one parka, like when I was like 15 years old. And it was like game changer. Yeah, like after I mean, that on. was like the first, like Bob Allen has some down jackets or whatever, you know, but the Columbia in, that, in those days were like, it was just like a game changer. Like you could actually go hunt uh, for a long time. You know, yeah. before that, man, you couldn't, you couldn't go, dude. You'd but now out. what you're saying is like now with the, everything oh, dude, from the all de- the clothing I mean, decoys you, have never looked more real guns have never died. yeah the ammunition the clothing everything is dialed up man always everything the calls are a lot better it's, it's just it's a new thing and i think things like this this podcast and digital media and tv yeah i mean where would you how old are you chad 45 okay i'm i'm gonna, I'm gonna turn 50 here pretty quick uh, when i was a kid dude you can watch like you would see duck hunting on tv once every five years yeah content's everywhere now yeah it's everywhere and so the media and the knowledge is so spread like there's nothing you can't go online right now you can type anything you want if you want to learn how to snowboard yeah. dude in a short period of time you can figure it out yeah. right because all Wait. the media is out there and they're showing you how to do it and that's the way waterfowl hunting but is, what man. about what, what are you thankful for the time for the years that you grew up doing it, Freddie, and the, and, and, the, and the way that you kept transitioning and evolving with it, are you thankful? Because, like, you, you there was the VHS tapes of Duck Commander. Yep. And then your first your first instructional videos were on VHS tapes. Yeah, yeah, I man. remember the Old Art school. of Paralyzing, right? I still have the Art of Paralyzing. That, and I was with Grounds. We did all grounds, the get-down covers all up. All that. And, 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 yep. and, but that, then you trans, and then you all of a sudden the 24-7 series is launched, which is really what put you on the map as the leading authority in waterfowl hunting. But what, what you did with it, though, is that you brought a new angle to the game, in my opinion. And correct me if I'm wrong, and I want you to answer that question is, are you thankful that you came up or would you rather come up now doing it? And you brought a new level to the game because you learned how to hide cameras and get birds as if there was no cameras in the field, giving the viewer that up close and personal, you know, intimacy with the birds. Yeah, I, 
you know, I think it's there's a lot of people that played into that. You know what I mean? Like what my first, I had two. My very very first hire was Dustin Whitaker Shed yeah, in Mossy Oak, yeah. right? And uh, and so I met him up in uh, uh, Alberta, Canada. I was up there filming with Tim Grounds. We're doing Get Down and Cover Up too, and we could tell stories about Grounds and traveling with that guy. Oh, I love as it. As far as characters, dude, man. There is no one has any more character than hey, Tim. Hey, bub. Hey, bub. Grounds. And then uh, I met Dustin there. And then uh, my second hire, when I started my company, uh, was Field Hudnall, right? Yeah. And so I would never change it. I mean, I have so many uh, relationships with people that are still in this industry today that uh, I either, A, got my start from them or they got my their start from me type of deal. You know, right. it just feels like... I'm just a page in a book, you know, but it feels good to be there. And I'm very, very thankful to, uh, I wouldn't want to be, I don't want to say I wouldn't want to start here now, but I'm glad. It's just perfect timing, dude. I really liked everything. I wouldn't change anything. What was, what was it, though, that got you from that 9-year-old, 10-year-old, you're 15, get your first Columbia parka? Tell, how does it start to where you're driving an excavator, you're in a loader, you're doing, you're doing breaking your back, doing nine to five yep. that your dad was doing. I did doing. construction, yeah. And and I and it takes a lot to get the balls and the guts to break off of that. Yep. And then you have a family with Dawn, and you yep. have a responsibility. You're having kids at a yeah, young I age. Yeah, I had kids and all that stuff. So, I grew up in my family business, and in the summertime, I just uh, I grew up baling hay. I was a farm kid, you know. And when I was young, uh, I would bale hay all summer long, you know. And, and clean horse stalls. That was my deal. And uh, and then when I get a little bit older, I think it was probably 15 years old, I started working for my dad in the summer doing construction, probably 14 or 15, probably 15, doing construction work, right? And so he did everything from putting in swimming poles, building houses, to doing excavating septic systems, whatever it was. My dad was a kind of a jack-of-all-trades type of guy. And so <clears throat> I started doing that, and then I, I love playing baseball. So I played baseball uh, starting at t-ball all the way up you know and uh i wanted to really play college ball and we were in uh we we're the final four of uh division one state championship we we're down to four in the in the uh in the legion ball the the uh just prior the, you know the summer ball before we won the state championship and so we were i was on a hell of a baseball team and we were down to the final four and i was a catcher i was taking warm-up throws to second base at one of my rotator cup and I was like, man, this college deal is not going to work. Going on, I wanted to be a veterinarian is what I was kind of thinking. And I was like, my dad, he was like, every time I'd turn around, he'd just hand me a key to a caterpillar. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he's like, hey, man, we can make good money. You can do right, you know, do whatever you want to do. So I never went to college. And uh, I always tell people this. I, I tell my son right now because he's struggling right now with what he wants to do. He went to college for a semester and said, dad, this ain't working for me. And then my daughter she graduated from Cleveland State, and she's at law school right now. She can't get enough of it. You know, everybody's different. Yeah. People find their way. People with good work ethic, such as yourself, that's what's always driven you to where you success for you is you don't ever quit, man. And when you have that type of mentality and you have some smarts about you and treat people good, you're going to be successful, right? So I started doing ex- – I started coming right out of high school. I started excavating. So um, I was like 18 years old at this point, right? Uh, I graduated, yeah, when I graduated, I was 17. And a couple of days later, I turned 18. I was, I was the second youngest athlete in our school. And uh, so I come out doing excavating, and we were going, this, this is a long story, but it gets to point your point. And the point is, uh, we were in Lake Michigan, Benton Harbor, St. Joseph. We salmon fish. My dad, my dad's a hunting, fishing, 
probably hunts and fishes as much as anybody I've ever met. Still today, he's 84 years old. He's still goose hunting right now. His health is not good, but last two days, they killed 12 uh, Saturday, and uh, last Sunday, they killed six, and it was the last two days of goose season. Him and his buddies, right? So he, at 84, he's still out there cracking. And um, we're up there salmon fishing, and the, back in those days, there wasn't really magazines, just newspapers and whatever. And I seen this thing that said, uh, U.S. Open Goose Calling Championship. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool, man. Because I was into, uh, I was blowing a night and hail double cluck at that time, right? It was like, kind of like a new call out and really hard to blow. It's kind of weird. Side note, didn't really sound like a, exactly like a goose, but dude, the geese would eat it alive. You know what I mean? Like just because of the pitch of it, or what? yeah, man, the pitch of it. Huh? It's pitch. Something about it. it's just like a grounds half breed. Yeah, not a hundred percent goose, but, it but I don't know what it is, man. They, it, it is to a goose, right? Yeah. And so, at that point, we started killing geese. Back up. I think we killed my or my first goose when I was twelve years old. About twelve years old. And it was like a uh, little side note here. That was when the Canada geese started to become everywhere. At that point, like I think we killed. 10 or 12 geese that year and dude like we were in the newspaper like there was no geese right right where i lived in ohio and so you fast forward to 1989 and i'm reading this paper and we go up there and we go to this u.s goose calling championship in uh, michigan city in indiana and there's like 40 callers there and if i could read you the list of names you'd be like I know those guys. Alan I know McCree, like all those guys. Oh yeah, I bet yeah. you can name a Keith bunch McGowan, of them. Keith McGowan, Sean Mann, Ryan yeah. Sullivan, the Ted Grounds. Oh yeah, I mean the very very Al Dagger, oh, yeah. Randy Bartz. Yeah. Like I met people that, be, that became lifelong friends that day in Michigan City, Indiana. And I met Grounds. Grounds is a character, dude. Grounds got Afro hair. Like, when his hair gets long, it looks like an afro, right? And he always had a hat. It was bent almost like almost like a V, man. We called it the 10-12. You know, like pitch on a roof, 10-12 hat? Yeah, oh, yeah. And he had that on afro sticking out everywhere, man. And uh, I met him. I started, in, and I bought a couple calls from him. You know, I started blowing. He was teaching me. and That's my first ground smoke cigarettes back in those days. I remember the first time I stand there, he said, Boy, I'll show you. This is how you do it. He took a big drag off a cigarette. And blew that goose call, and the smoke right I'm down that flute right into my face. I was like, "Wow, man, this guy's awesome!" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he never changed. He never changed. Never changed, man. And so that's where I met Ground. And at that time, um, I just started a competition called Duck Calling. You know what I mean? And so I start, I got into it, and uh, I bought a bunch of calls. So I started selling Grounds' calls. I went there and I said, "Man, I, I think I can sell some." So I bought a dozen goose calls at that uh, contest plus the one that I bought for myself. And I called him like a week later, and said, I need to buy some more goose calls. He's like, what'd you do with the ones you sold? Or uh, I sold you, I, said, I sold them all, man. There's People are dying for these things. And that goes back to show that, um, I remember going to shows, and uh, when I had that catalog that you brought up, uh, my guy, my salesman, was Jeff Foyles. I wow. met Foyles in, uh, I think, 92? 92 or 93 in Michigan. We're guiding. I went up there to guide for Sonny Jackson's out of Knutson's in Brooklyn, Michigan. Yeah, yeah. I went in, I got to tell you a story about foils. This true story has laughed my ass off, man. My dad looked at me and just shook his head. We pull up there. Sonny Jackson was, he was a great dude. Everybody loved him, but he never did anything. Like he was always the last guy to show up type of guy. Yeah, and he owned the guide service? Uh huh. And, but Canada he, Geese Guide Service. But he could sell it. 
he gets out. Like people call in and go, hey, killing in geese. Oh, yeah, man, we, we really had a good day today. Everybody's looking around the table like, man, we didn't kill shit. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, hey, boys, I got some more guys coming. You know what I mean? But sometimes you did kill a lot of geese, but sometimes whatever, you know. But I pulled up there. Is that good? And Foyles is sitting there, and he's got a, uh, was a red pickup truck, right? It had a camper top on it. And Sonny Jackson had his pit down along the river, and the river had come up and flooded the pit. And then it got, like, well, I mean, it, like, flooded, like, months ago. But Sonny didn't know. We went down there, and he had put snow fence all around these pits, right? And we went down there, and we opened the pit lids up. And it was full of water, but it wasn't water. It was a foot and a half of ice. So we had sledgehammers. We had beat this ice out and pumped this pit out so we could hunt it the next day. That opening day was the next day, next right? Next day, right. So the snow fence was in there. It had all these fence posts around there, and they're frozen to the ground. Like, it's cold, like almost zero, right? And these fence posts, you cannot pull them out. We got them all out by one. Full says, I'll get it out. He pulled his pickup truck back there right up against the fence post and takes a chain or chain or rope and hooks it to the fence post and to the bumper. At that time, I don't, I don't know foils. I'm just meeting everybody. So I'm just standing back and looking. Being in construction, excavating all my life, I looked at it and go, yeah, that, that's not a good good <laughs> idea right there. And Boyles gets in the pickup truck, puts it in drive, slams on the gas. Fence posts come out, all right, but it went through his back glass of his camper top and halfway out the side of his fiberglass camper top. He did like, it's like a $1,000 camper top. It was worth like $25 in like two seconds. <laughs> My dad looked at me and just shook his head. That's how I met Foyles, man. It was hilarious. But, but that's how I got started. And so I started selling Grounds' calls and, and uh, competing in calling contests. So I met Grounds in 89. Well, think, before you go on, how did it end up for you in the, in the contest with the double club? Well, the, this is your very first contest that you ever entered? No, 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 Open? no, no, no. I just went to watch. Oh, you just went to watch. I didn't you're, know you're shit not about competition calling. Really? I just sitting there in the first row like, you're just like, this will be cool. I want to go check this out. Oh, yeah, man. I thought I was something. You know, like around uh, my house. Hey, Belding, can you give me a water? Yeah. Man, here. Look at Look at that. Oh, boom. That's what I'm talking about. Look at that service. Joe Roger last week, he had a whole spread set up for me. <laughs> Come here with Belding guys. Well, you, I, Ben's the tour manager. Did you get Freddie's rider? <laughs> he, wants, he wants green M&M's, some G.I. Joe's. Yeah, yeah. Need a little beat. And, uh. So, no, man, I just remember sitting there. It was, it was it was summertime. I think it was like August, right, of 89. And I was sitting there, and these dudes start lighting it up. Like, we're talking about the very best in the world there, from from Maryland, Delaware, southern Illinois. I'm just like, holy mackerel, man. Loved it. Oh, dude, it was it was eye-opening experience. And so I got grounds call. I'll say one thing. My duck calling, I really had to work at. <coughs> Excuse me. So... I blew a Carlson championship call, you know, Bowling and Wendell show. Carlson. I used to go out there all the time. I, he was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Barney Califf, uh, Scott Carlson. Bernie. Yeah. Good good dudes, man. Yeah. And um, I used to spend a lot of time out there in the summertime. I'd go for three four days, stay at Wendell's house, and he would teach me. I think that was the foundations. To be honest with you, when it comes to Colin, I would say I would probably give more props to Wendell Carlson for my uh, ability than anyone because – he might not be well known now, but in the in the calling circuit back then, he was well, very well known. He, his technique was very technical, and he had an approach, a uh, very scientific approach to how to blow a duck call and how a proper duck call was made, and what it had to do to be a proper. He called him an instrument, right? So I kind of learned from uh, someone that had some technique, 
right? Yeah. And so I took that information and took it into goose calling. And um, so I started competing in duck calling contests. And then I, when I got grounds as goose calling, the goose calling is just something that I could do, I always do. Like every time I picked up my goose call, I could do a different note. It was just like, it was the progression. Was, was it always incredible. all? Because the double cluck or the, the night and hill call that you're referring double to. Double clucker. Yep. Was that kind of one of the first stages of the short read call? It kind of was. It was, but it know, was, but from a production standpoint, it was. You know, like you, you had has calls. Didn't you start on a flute, or did you not? Oh yeah, yeah, competition calling. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but I'm talking about killing geese. So that was just when you're hunting. So now you're now when you go into the call when you buy these calls from Tim, is is it the guide's best? That is yeah, it, it is. the flute call. Is guide's that, best. That's yep. all that he had at that. That's time. all he had, man. He didn't have anything else. He had a variable tone honker. So you buy twelve guides best. You go back to Ohio. You kill some geese with it. Your friends here. You sell all twelve of them quick. Yeah, in like week. And, and now, and now you call Tim back. Hey, bub, what'd you do with them calls? You, yeah, I need he some said, more. Hey, you, 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 you got to sell them for thirty dollars. Sell it. You can't be giving them away. I said, I sell them for thirty dollars. Unbelievable, bud. <laughs> so I started. I started uh, selling calls for grounds, and uh, I started practicing. And <clears throat> so I think nineteen ninety. So I got my first grounds goose call in like August of eighty nine. In nineteen ninety, I won the Ohio State Championship goose calling contest. So year later something like that like 12 uh, 13 months later something like that and uh and that seems like a lot you know it was like oh man you become the state champ at that point there was like i don't know seven or eight people in the contest it wasn't like i was a world beater right and so the whole time i was competing in duck calling contest uh as well it was like my primary thing because there was duck calling contest um and that was kind of like my passion because i wanted to really get good at duck calling and so I think I won my first, uh, 92, 93, 94, uh, my first one in 92, first duck calling championship. So as you well know, once you qualify from Stuttgart, you get to go play in the big show. And so uh, that's the part I, that I hated. And what I mean by that is when I was trying to learn how to get good duck calling, it was awesome because I could go every weekend or every other weekend. My dad would go with me, drive me all over, you know, and I could compete. But once I started getting good, so once I won in 92, by that time I started to get pretty damn good, right? So, or 91. So in 92, I won like in my second calling contest. So I couldn't blow any more duck calling contests. Because once you're qualified, Once you're, you're qualified, you're done. It was yeah. no like me calling contests or unsanctioned calling contests. It was always, you know, get, get your ticket. Yeah, and now it's up to you just to practice for the Yeah, world. get your bus ticket, right? Yeah. And so... Um, they call it a bus ticket because you used you to go down the there and sit in a bus. That yeah. was the state, you know, it was the waiting room. So got your bus ticket. So, uh, and then in 93, uh, or 94, I won, I think my first calling contest and the whole time I kept, you know, they're sending, uh, brochures and, uh, and flyers in the mail, you know, a thousand dollar goose calling contest, this and whatever. So I started, I was like, man, kind of like this goose calling deal. I'm going to get into this. And, uh, in the world, I got, uh, Third runner-up, fourth runner-up in the world duck calling contest. But by the time I got uh, third runner... Wait, you placed top 10 twice in stuck calling? Yeah, and, and 90, let's see, 93, 92, 92 or 93, I got uh, third runner-up. And who's... Or fourth runner-up. Give me, give me up. some of the names who were taught. Was it... Who was... Barty Califf, Bernie Boyle, uh, Buck Gardner. Is uh, Trey there? Trey. No, Trey was... No, at that point he didn't. He didn't. He's... Uh, John Stevens. Oh, really? That's when they... Jim Ronquist. So I met got... Jimbo Ronquist uh, in 1990 in Omaha, Nebraska. 
Really? Yeah. Because he's from Missouri, right? Yeah. O'Fallon area. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, he's from Stuttgart. He likes me. He yeah, likes that's me. what I say. Justin Taggett said, man, Jimbo, he's taking Arkansas language to a whole new level. <laughs> Cracks me up. He does, but too. He's a Missouri boy that's got talks more like an Arkansas boy yeah. than a guy from Arkansas. He, he said something also, Taggett, one time. He said, Ronquist is the only guy pissed that he's not from Arkansas. Yeah, that's Taggett's deal. Yeah, 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 yeah. you always say that, too. It, the other thing he would say is, like, Jimbo takes Arkansas language any further. You'll have to get a chalkboard and a piece of chalk and see, uh, so he can write down what he's saying. Yeah, just, like, <laughs> freaking subtitles. Oh, yeah, man. Just Southern as it so gets. So you're competing but, against so some Jimbo. studs oh, and yeah, man. in the top ten. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. So I got third runner-up or fourth runner-up, and then I got third runner-up. And then I was at 93, 94. And I, I qualified in 95 to go down there. But at that time, I'll be honest with you, I was done with it. You were over it. Yeah. I didn't really practice for the world. At that time, I was full go goose calling. Yep. And uh, so I started competing in goose calling and traveling around with grounds, selling calls. I sh- I, he would go like Point Malay um, and all these places, grounds would. And I'd go work the booth with him, you know, because it was like a, I was like a sponge. Anytime I could be around somebody kind of like our relationship right anytime you're around somebody that knows what the hell you're they're doing it's yeah. like and if you got any drive or brains at all you can pick it up right yeah, oh yeah. and so <clears throat> just hearing grounds talk about you know, he was teaching other people how to blow a goose call and blowing that call i could hear and go okay man that note i remember that note or whatever and then i go home and practice and he, he would show me how to how he'd hold his hands and all this stuff and so i used him as a, a sponge man and uh so I started competing in goose calling contests, and to be honest with you, I was pro- it came really easy. Why came do you? Why though? Be, no, you're talking. You're talking about something. the mechanics. But see, I had a really good mechanic knowledge from blowing a duck call that I learned from Wendell. So, um, at that point, um, I could understand things. Like when I made a note, I didn't make it by mistake, or I would make it by mistake, but I could duplicate it. If that makes sense. Oh, yeah. A lot of people's like, "Oh man, I can, I can, I could, I, I hit a note, but I can't do it again." And uh, I could, I could because of my knowledge I learned from window and I had talent. You know, it's like anything. Everybody wants to be a professional football player, <laughs> but not very many people have that talent. You yeah. know, and I just happen to have that talent uh, to blow a goose call really easy. It's just and, something and, I could do. And again, we're talking about a flute style call, it was which, flute, yeah. which you today, if you talk to a lot of goose callers, you got, you got to a level of that to where you don't even hear a people getting to on, you know, proficient on a flute call anymore. Not even many people make them anymore. I, I, I tell you what, man, grounds. I mean, the callers that were back in those days, right? Um, grounds is at the top of the heap. And then you had, uh, uh, Sean Mann, which is a guy named Alan Cree. Alan McCree and Gary, his brother, yeah? Yeah, Gary was really good. Alan, he just had this tone, right? And I went to, I think it was 1993, I went to the uh, Grand American Goose Calling Championship in Real Foot Lake, Tennessee. And I never I never knew who Alan McCree was, you know? He come up, started blowing a goose call, and dude, let me tell you, the hair on my neck stood up. Goose. It was like nothing I've ever heard. I was like, holy shit, right? So after it was over, Alan won the calling contest, you know, and Grounds got second. So I said, Grounds, man, I said, no offense, but I want something like Alan. How is he getting that sound? Hey, bub, I'll show you. So he cuts a flute reed, because everybody's blowing a little bit longer flute reed. He, he cuts, 
he takes a pair of scissors, cuts one side off the flute reed, makes it more narrow, has a little bit of a hook to it, and it's real, real short. He tunes it up to sound like a snow goose. He said, see that right there? I go, yeah. I said, it don't sound not like him. He said, you're right, because your call's not, your guts aren't worn in. You see how I cut that reed? He said, I'm gonna cut you four or five more of them. He said, you blow that call every day. And he said, it will sound like him in the end. Really? Yeah, it was kind of like building a house. You want that house right there? Yeah, well, here's your two before. Right. Well, what what was McCree blow? Was he still was he modified? He old? old. Was yep. he doing was he doing them by himself then? Yeah, he was modifying them. You know, I remember for a time you could buy those. From yeah, him. I got I got some of them. Yeah. But so I started blowing it, and it took I don't know maybe two or three weeks, a month, something like that, and it's I could start to feel it go. You know what I mean? Before I blow it, my dad would be like, "What the hell are you doing?" I was like, I "Grounds. This is what Grounds told me to do." So I'm gonna stick to it. So I kept sticking to it, and I started to feel it go. And once I could start to hear that, that I call it the whistle. It's just got that nasally, unbelievable goose sound. You know, I could start to feel it and hear it. And it's kind of like, kind of like working out, looking in the mirror. You start to look good, or you see your muscles get. You can't get enough of it, right? Yeah. And so I just kept blowing it and blowing it and blowing it. The next year, at the Grand American in 1994, I was blowing it for grounds. He goes. Oh, he's gonna shit his pants. So Gary or Alice walked down the uh, was walking down the aisle. He said, "When he gets by, start blowing your call." I started blowing it. He turned around, and looked like, "What's that?" You know. He and I won. Alan got second. I won the calling contest. Really? Yeah. And this is in '94. This is '94. Grand American, Real Foot Lake, Tennessee. How many callers are in this one? I don't know. Probably, man. All those goose calls, thirty-five or forty. Something like that. Yeah. I don't know for sure, but, I mean, there was some heat. So is know? that is that the first big contest you won? It was. And you yeah. did it with Alan McCree as your inspiration to get to that G- Gary. Or, right. Oh, Alan. Alan, Alan you're right. right. Yeah, 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 Alan. And that was the sound that you were chasing. Yeah, man. So did, did Tim did Tim tell you that with, like, did, how did he know all that? Did he use the, did oh, he pull the whole part? No, no, no. He used to modified uh, A50s. That's how Grounds got his start, right? Modifying yeah. the A50s. And so... He's probably the one that started it, or one of many, but probably the guy knowing Grounds, right? Yeah. And Grounds just had a little different style than that. You know what I mean? Grounds had, like, when he blew a goose call in a calling contest, he had, like, 100 different sounds. Grounds did. I mean, it was just all over the board. But he could make so many different sounds, it was unbelievable. Where Alan was really clean, but he sounded exactly, in my opinion, like a goose. Grounds had, I would say, obviously more talent, more skill. But Alan concentrated on one thing. It sounded like a goose. And that, that just made my hair stand up. I was like, that's what I want to do. You know what I mean? You see, it's not that one was better than the other one. It's just, and that when they would competed, it was either, those two was either, and, and this is how I beat, and this is, in my opinion, how I beat Alan. I, I dissected it. I looked at it and go, all right, every calling contest, it's either Grounds wins, Tim wins, or Alan wins. Tim has, we call it the special spice. You know, hey, bub, give him a little something special, right? And then Alan was super simple, but sounded like a goose. Where did I think I was going to play? I was going to be the goose with some spice. Yeah. So that's where I set up. That's where I try, I try to hit right between the two. Because I could blow the stuff that Grounds could do, but I wanted to sound like that deep whistle, nasally can of the goose that, that Gary or Alan could do. So that's why I mixed it up. I was kind of like in between. I was like, well, if they're one and two every time and I'm between them, 
I'm either going to be one or two as well. That was my thought process. So th- this is 94. This is still several years before you designed the SR1. Yeah, I didn't and do that until so like 2001. So when does the transition take place? If, if the flute call sounds so good, Freddie, and you got all this whistle goose and that, that real deep, greater Canada, just badass sound that makes the hair yeah. on the back of your neck stand up, why does it go the short wi- the short read way? And I think that was even the name of one of Tim's videos, was, the short, short read way. way. Yep. And how? When does that start to take place? Is it right in that time frame of well, 96, I, 97? No, 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 no. Uh, to be honest with you, it started when Kelly Powers hit the scene. He started blowing that super mag, right? And uh, he started winning, like. Uh, I think late 90s. 99, he won the Worlds. In 2000, he won the Champion and Champions. So he was it's winning like, like 96, 97. Uh, I think it's more like, hmm, I think like 98 or 99. But why was that called? Why was did Tim do that? Why, how did that come about? He, I, I know I that Tim you, had I, a mentor. I, I, and, I, I, I will tell you the reason why I think short reads uh, become strong and flutes faded. Simply because flutes were extremely hard to blow. Not many people can blow them really well. They could blow them, but there was just, like, to be honest with you, a handful of people that could really, it was just better than everybody else, right? That's number one. But I think the real reason is they weren't that good calling geese in the field. Like, they were good, but not great. They the short read the versatility. was way better in the field. So people blowing short reads in the field, so it was just a natural progression because people got really good on short reads because they blew them all year long. So, like, I would blow a flute in contests, but when I went hunting, I'd blow a half read or a super mag. I never blew. Towards the end, I never blew a flute, you know? <laughs> so it's just a natural progression, you know? So you put a, you put a call in a, in, in a guide's hand, and he's not only practicing for a calling contest with it, but then when he goes to the field, daylight to dark, he's blowing it, and he gets damn good at it. Where... The flute, it was a, it just the flute come to an end. You know what I mean? Because of the non-use in the field. It's not it, a flute's not good in the field. This is not as effective as a short read. Plus, it was different. So when did you in '94 you win the Grand Nationals at Real Foot Leg in Tennessee? Yeah. Are you going to Easton at this time too and competing in the world? Or did you I ever think get the first year I went to Easton was '94. '94. So are you done? Are you done? In competition, goose calling also. By the time Kelly Powers comes on the scene with a short read, or are you still no, no. Game? I was just at the end. I was just like, I competed for ten years in goose calling, or for and and yeah, in goose calling. I've competed five years in duck calling. I've competed from basically nineteen ninety to two thousand. Last time I blew a calling contest in the it was world two thousand. Two thousand. Yep. With and Sean Stahl. So are you on a short read at this time, or did that you time? That's the first time I blew the SR one, which is called that I uh, designed. Yeah. It's the first time I blew a contest. It stood for super realism. What did it stand for? Uh, yeah. Super, Super realism. realism. Yeah. One. That's and then you one. had the XR. No, actually, it was uh, short read one. Short read one. And yeah, yeah, I kept realism. it simple. Was extreme realism the XR duck call? XR two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the duck call. Yeah. Um, so you you you're all you're out of it by the time the the competition short read phenomenon. I was takes definitely place. phasing out of it. It's kind of like anything. Uh, you put everything into it, you can, and you achieve uh, success, and you do it over and over and over and over again. And I won a lot of calling contests. Um, there was, uh, I can't remember what, we were, 96 maybe. I won every calling contest I was in except for one, and that was a world championship. I got second but, in Easton. But what had happened, though, in my opinion, if I think back, is that when 2000 hits, this is kind of like the, it, this is kind of like the beginning of 
your phenom your phenomenal career where it is now. What got that's yeah, like yeah, when it took off, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as met, professionally, met, as far as making money, yeah. I met you in two thousand at Max. You and Kelly Powers were behind the call counter. Chuck Lock had you behind the call counter, and yep. you would just come out with your own call line. Yep. And then and then that's kind of like when the Avery days start, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> I got my start. Uh, I worked with Jim Kripe at Outlaw Decoys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <coughs> Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, in the mid-'90s, right? I think about 93, 94, something like that, Grounds and I. And uh, we were in all his uh, 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 magazines, and, and I used to hell of his decoys and, and, and you know, talk to him about, hey, try this, do this, or what, this is what I'm seeing, darker, lighter, all this stuff. Yeah, that was the Outlaw Decoy, and then you guys were the Cornfield Camo. Cornfield Camo. With Outlaw oh, yeah. Decoys, and then it went in. Yeah, so that memory. Yeah, that was back in the day. And then I got hooked up with uh, Latchaw, Final, Final Approach. He sent another, me this, another Oregon-based guy. Yeah, yeah. He sent me this decoy, or excuse me, ground blind. It's called a Special Purpose Slider. You, you remember that oh, one? yeah. It was like giant, Heavy lid right? slider. Yeah, out. big aluminum frame, giant. But it was innovative. It was kind of like my bay window, right? Yeah. But somewhat portable. Yeah. And it was like... It was like six ninety nine or seven. I think it was seven ninety nine. Yep. I was like, wow, man. So he sends me one cornfield camo, and he said, "Tell me what you think." And so I put it out in my yard. I'm using it. I take it goose hunting. It's better than nothing, but it ain't right. You know what I mean? Like you had to slide the door all the way out before you could get your gun out, and and the geese would flare. Plus, it was giant. You're laying on the ground. Seven hundred bucks, eight hundred bucks. So he said, "What do you think?" I said, "You think it'll sell?" I go, "I don't. I really don't think." I said, you got to come up, you got to be in that three, four hundred dollar range. You got to come up with something smaller and portable with a floor in it. Okay. So he took that information, plus probably he was already thinking it, and came back and it was like, I give Latchaw one thing, he was always a worker. You know, everybody you talk about, oh man, that guy's, man, he's really, oh, he's a worker, right? Yeah. It always comes out. And he took everything to heart. When you said something, he believed it and he would work on it, right? So I think it was like maybe two months, two or three months later, he sends me a box. And in that box is a blank called The Eliminator, right? First one he ever made, I still have it. Sent it to me, I pulled it up, I remember putting it on my sidewalk, I got in, I called him, I said, dude, you knocked it out of the park. This is badass. But the first one had the same, uh, 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 Backrest is a special purpose slider, which is a little piece of like gray plastic with a little aluminum hook and had a cable on it. And I was like, dude, everything's badass, but the seat sucks. There's no way that's, I mean, you got to do it. So him and I talked and we come up with this hammock style seat that was in there. I said, what about like a hammock? You know what I mean? He's like, I don't know how I'm attaching all this stuff. I was like, and we went back and forth, two or three phone calls. So he sent me his next version and it, it was an eliminator with a hammock style seat. And so he started producing it and dude, we sold them like crazy. Really? Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, everybody. I mean, everybody was, had them. And the geese, the geese had no idea because all the Canada geese in that time was uh, either hunted out of a pit or some kind of big box blind or hunted out of a typically out of a fence row, rock pile, whatever, yeah. right? And so when you could go out in the middle of the field and put your decoys out, they come over the tree line and they just lock right up, come right in. Yeah. Depth perception, you hide your. I mean, they, um, they had no, they were they could see it, it, but they had no idea. That's, no idea. that's a plan with a, with a blind. A lot of time they can see it, but they don't know what it is, right? Yeah. And that was the ground blind era during the, those days, like 92, 93, and that time like that. And and so we started smashing them. And but Latchall was not a goose caller, and so the regular eliminator 
had doors that, that you couldn't see, you could see out of, but you can blow your goose call out of it. So then I come up with something called a pro guide. I remember. Which had a lowered headrest and had the, the doors were further down or whatever, so you could actually blow your goose call in there, you know. So him and I got, uh, you know, and he's a hell of a businessman. He was just a pusher and, and had a hell of a product, you know. So him and I were, uh, or he was doing that. I was helping him. Grounds was helping me. Foils got involved. There's a lot of people helping him out. It was like everywhere we went. When I went to uh, uh, up to film with Grounds up in Alberta, Latchall came. Perry, you know, remember Perry Northcutt? You know that name? No. So Perry Northcutt was a dude that was friends with Latchall. And he's a super cool dude. And I got to tell you the story because uh, people will laugh. It is a true story. But Perry Northcutt was the first dude that uh, come up with flocking. He had a company called Black Widow Flocking. Oh, he's I the dude. That, yeah. He's the that dude company. that come up with flocking, yeah. right? So this side note, I can tell the story because it's a uh, I can't get trouble for it anymore. I know grounds damn sure can. So we're in Alberta. We're filming Get Down Cover Up too. We're on this pond. Perry and, and Latchall was in the pond next to us. Grounds and I were hunkered down in the cattails, and we're shooting these ducks, pintails, and mallards, or whatever coming in. We're having a hell of a good time. We weren't filming it because we were filming goose hunts. We were just up there in the afternoon having a good time. So we got all over limit but one, okay? It was a pintail, and we knocked it down. It flowed across the pond. And Grouse, hey, bub, we'll just get Perry, get his dog. We'll get it, be done with it, all right? So we're one shy, and we told Perry. So after dark, Perry comes walking up the truck. Grouse, hey, bub, take that dog over there on the south side there. There's a pintail and the cattails. Go get it. So Perry leaves with his dog. He's gone like 25, 30 minutes. Grounds like, hey, where's he at? There's one duck. He comes back and he goes, hey, boys, I think you got more than one over there. He walks in the headlight, and he's got like 15 or 20 ducks on this lanyard hanging around his neck. I'm going, Grounds like, hey, bub, I said one. <laughs> he walked in the headlights. They were immature redheads. They couldn't fly. They couldn't fly because it was weird in the September. The dog just kept getting oh, it. He kept getting The dog kept getting it. And, he, and uh, Perry thought you were cripples in the dark. He kept ringing head, their necks. Ringing their necks. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy, man. And he had like, I don't know. He, had, he probably had 10. And they were all immature redneck. I thought Grounds was, oh, my God. He, I thought he was going to run all the way back to Illinois. He wanted <laughs> out of that spot, man. <laughs> but it was all harmless deal it was just a situation right, yeah. where he's like hey man you guys had way more than one grounds like hey bob i'm telling you it was one <laughs> and it was but <laughs> oh my god he walked in the headlights and all you could see is these little stubs coming out and these little feathers look like white to you know just the quills are just starting to form yeah. they're like ducks are like six months old they couldn't even fly <laughs> grounds i thought was gonna die man <laughs> but that's the stuff that happens right so uh but by that time I started working on a new ground blind. And that's about the time that I realized, Chad, that I wanted to be in the business. At that point, see, I was still digging holes and building houses. and right. At that time, we were pretty much doing excavating. But I wanted to get the business. So I talked to Grounds on and off. I was like, dude, I really like, I wanted to work for Grounds. That's really what I wanted to do. And I was trying to get him um, to bring me on for the duck call side of things. I said, dude, just let me run the duck call side. I'll work for you, man. We can blow it up. And he talked about it quite a bit, actually. And um, he finally said, man, I just I want to keep it small. I just want to, I want, I want to keep it small, keep it in my basement, you know what I mean? That's the way I want to do it. I was like, that's cool, I get it. But I wanted to get in the business, you know what I mean? I didn't want to 
dig it. It's not that I didn't like doing what I did, but I loved waterfowl, right? Yeah. And so I come up with this blind that would fold up because I was telling Ron, I said, hey, man, the blinds are awesome, but when it's muddy and you can't drive in, you know, he was an Oregon-based company, so that field, you know how it is. Oh, yeah. a, lot, a lot of those places you can drive in. It's sandy, it's dry, stuff like that. You can drive in where I live. Man, it would rain, dude. There's a lot of places you couldn't drive in. Farmers wouldn't let you. You had to carry your stuff in. Yeah. And try to carry a eliminator is not hard to carry. Try to carry it in 25 mile an hour wind. Yeah. It's like carrying a piece of impossible. plywood. It's impossible. Need two guys. Yeah, it's impossible. So, uh, I came up with this blind would fold up, you know. And at that time, I realized that I needed to do something for me instead of helping people. I mean, they treated me right. Don't get me wrong but not compensation wise right. right and just friendship wise which is great but sometimes you gotta make ends meet yeah and at that time time i just had my son my daughter was three four years old you know and we're a young family and i went man i got this idea and i talked to ron about it. he's like man i don't really want to do a fold-up blind things are good let's keep it going or whatever so i come up with a blind called the finisher I designed it all up and, my, and I bent it all up with aluminum. I, my dad had a, a aluminum bender, so I bent it all up. I went to uh, my sister-in-law Jill's house, and I got some, like, cotton uh, shattergrass, mossy oak shattergrass that I bought somewhere online or whatever. She had a sewing machine, so I drew everything out. Her and I sewed the cover-up for the very first finisher in her living room, and, and, and uh, so I had it. So at that time, I started my call company uh, also. So... <coughs> In the, uh, it was a DU Memphis when they had the, the outdoor festival in Memphis. It was the first time I sold my duck calls, my XR2 duck calls, and I had that. I'd called, I knew uh, Chris Paradise from Flambeau, and he knew Tom Matthews. And I had met Tom and Tate at uh, different, uh, they would show up like Point Malay and all that stuff, selling Avery equipment or whatever. And they weren't into goose hunting, uh, they were duck hunters. But selling I, the boat blind. But yeah. I, yeah. The quick set. And so I knew him, but I didn't really know him. So Paradise called and got a meeting lined up. So I'll go there and meet with Tom. And I got this thing up. And I said, hey, uh, I got a grand blind I want to show you. I'd like to do a royalty deal or whatever. He said, okay, man, bring it in. So I take it to his office. He said, we've been trying to make a blindfold up for like six, eight months or a year or whatever, him and Tate. And they had basically the quick set design that would fold down. And it just, it was something they were working on but they they didn't have it perfected yet and i unfolded it he looked at me and goes you would you do a presentation like yeah like when he goes like how about right now he said i got the ams guys uh in there which was their sales rep group right now doing me would you take it in there and do it you know so i went in there and sent for all these people put the blind up finish your blind at that time on the table and did it so him and i made a deal matthews and i made a deal a royalty deal on finisher blind so uh, in 2001 was a launch, but they couldn't get it right in China. And I'm still doing excavating. I remember we're doing, we're doing this uh, church, church school. We're doing all the excavating. We're doing it underground and the pad building and all the excavating. And Matthews calls me. <coughs> this was back in bag phone days with pagers. That was the dealio, right? Yeah. And my pager kept blowing up. It was Matthews. He's losing his mind. He says, these people in China can't get it figured out. He said, if we don't get it figured out in the next week, we got to start shipping, I'm canceling all of them. This is my dream. Like, since I've been nine years old, eight years old, you know, now's my dream. As I, I go over to my dad, I said, hey, dad, I think I got to go to China. He goes, what? 
was like, yeah, this blind, they can't figure the blind out, you know? So I called Matthews up and I said, uh, I'll go to China. He goes, you'll what? I said, I'll go to China. What do I got to get? He said, we got to have a visa and a passport. That's foreign language to me, right? Yeah. So I met this guy named Stuart Martin at the LAX uh, airport. So I flew from, um, at that time I lived in Dayton. I flew from Dayton to like LAX, right? He said, you'll see him. He'll have an ugly shirt on and blonde hair. And he named it. Uh, Stuart always wore like Hawaiian shirts, you know? I looked at him and I was like, are you Stuart? He goes, yeah, are you Fred? Yep. So I get on a plane to LAX and we fly to China. I never met this guy. So I fly into China, spend three days over there in the factory, showing them how to put this cover and this, how this blind works and all this stuff. We get figured out, we ship our first blind. Wow. 2001. How many trips do you think in your career? Well, that was the first of how many to China? I don't know how many. I know I probably got, I'd have to count them. It doesn't really matter, but I got about 700 days probably in China, something like that. 700 days. Yeah. Really? I think just went down. Yeah, tight. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so, 700 days. I would say for sure. One, one year, uh, I had 154 days one year. I had to pay tax in China. Really? Yeah, income tax. When was the last time you were in China? Uh, three years ago. Do you miss it? Do you miss that lifestyle of getting over there and dealing with factories? To be honest with you, I do because if you're an entrepreneur and you're a product designer, you can sit in America or where, you know, you can manufacture in America. It's not that you gotta go to China, but making what we make, especially decoys, painting, um, and all the stuff that we do. I try, when I started AVNX later on, I was, I, I made my mind up. I was like, I want to do it in America. You know, I want American made products. Uh, dude, I can get anybody to bid on it. The costs are out of control. The margins were so low because of that. It was just, because I just don't want to make a decoy. I want to make a really good decoy. And a really good decoy takes labor. It takes a lot of painting, right? You can't do it in America. You literally can't. Can't. I don't believe you can, man. No. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. There's, we, when we were rolling greenhead gear, at one time, um, at one time between we had three factories going. We we're making twenty-five thousand decoys per day finished. Right. We had like seven hundred workers. Seven hundred workers. Low molding, packaging, shipping, painting. How are you gonna do that, American man? You can't. You can't. Not and not and make the profit margins. You need to make a living. Yeah, that's the, that's the whole problem of it. You know, it's just like I look at that, and I don't want to do it in China either. But I look at Americans as being entrepreneurs, using their mind to make it, and China uses their hands. To make and they it. and they just don't stop. And they don't stop. And what? Stuff. So where does this take you? In 2001, you ship. So that 2001, first I'm still working. I go over there, whatever, and then uh, it starts blowing up. Look, big time big time this is like Avery was seven years old this time but this is like when Avery just like went to the different level right yeah <clears throat> when I started working with Avery uh, they had blind bags they had, they had blind bags they had the gun boat cases blind, and the boat blind and the boat blind was the main business you know yeah. and uh, they had a uh, coffeeville was their sewing plant yeah at that time they just started to store stuff overseas right and uh, they were uh they were a fairly large, they were not, they were a duck hunting company and they made some really, really cool products, right? Uh, very, uh, they're entrepreneurs. Matthews, that guy's a thinker, man. He's, he's a, awesome. Yeah, it's a Almost too smart to be. He's a very good product people, designer, huh? man. I, I will promise you. He's really, and he's, cause he's into the detail. I was, 
I was broad, he was narrow. And that's why we made such a good team. Like, I could get it figured out. He would not let it go out the door until it was perfect, like packaging or every almost little too, Almost too perfect. Sometimes. Almost, sometimes almost too perfect. But I was sometimes almost too broad, right? Yeah. And so I would get, I'd rough it. I was the rough carpenter. He was the finished carpenter is what I always said, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, And so we started going, and um, him and Alan came to me, and they go, what else do you think we should get into? Because the blind business started growing, like, crazy right mm-hmm. and so at that time avery was like <clears throat> i went there i think it was like a five and a half million dollar company something like that about that right there somewhere in there five and a half six million and i said man i think we should do decoys and they're like what decoys what do you know about decoys i said well to be honest with you nothing about making them but i know a lot about carving them and i know that there's a better way I, and they said, how are we going to be? Because everybody, you, back in those days, if you're a goose hunter, you, you use Bigfoots. Yep. That was just it, right? If you were a duck hunter, pretty damn serious, you used G&H, man. Yep. You know, like Henrietta's, right? Yep. And that was just what you did. And, uh, but those two had a flaw, and that was they, they were good decoys. They just weren't realistic. And they were durable, but they didn't really look like the real thing. Like Bigfoots were pretty decent, kind of. But uh, G&H was like way off. Way off. Way off. In Flambo, way off. You're talking the the floating duck decoys were way off. Way off. Big feet to this day kill a lot of geese. They still do. But when it comes to uh, anatomy, they're still not. And and like selling to the consumer, like when they started seeing what you put out there, that catches a goose eye, but it also catches that consumer's eye. Yeah, yeah, you're selling artwork. Look how real this is, Yeah, I mean, you're basically selling artwork, right? And so they said, okay, how are we going to do this? And so it was a long story. I went, there was, they, Tom committed to doing it. But then when we got going, he wanted to take a shortcut. And it was, I was about to lose my mind. Because uh, we actually, the first year, uh, Greenhead made decoys, Greenhead gear made decoys. They actually, we actually used some existing molds in China that someone who went there, opened up, didn't pay for, and they were sitting there. And so we actually used somebody else's mold. Really? Yeah. It wasn't no. There wasn't. It wasn't illegal. It was all legit. But it's not how I want to enter the decoy business. You know, that wasn't my dream. Was my it, dream was to make something that was kick-ass, right? And it wasn't illegal. No, no, because it was. It was a Chinese carved decoy. And somebody had made molds and quit using them, and this guy still had possession of them. Really? Yeah. So it so it was fair game. You just said, "Hey, it this was one's fair game. this one's yours if you want it." Yep, it was fair game. And so where did what what decoy was that? Do I know which one it was? Well, it was the original Greenhead gear ones, like the teal and all that stuff. Really? The original Greenhead gear that, that that we only made for a year. So then you, but you come along now. Now now it's time to put your start carving. That, that's when I started working uh, full time for Avery. It was the spring of. Uh, we had a couple carvers lined up that were going to carve, and they failed. And um, when I mean failed, they didn't even carve the decoy, right? Right. Uh, they wanted Mr. Hughes, Alan Hughes' dad, to carve the a decoy. Artist. Yeah, he's an artist. He knows a doctor, but he was an artist and carved. And uh, Mr. Hughes, he was a doctor, man. This is, I mean, you got Tom. You know Tom. Oh, yeah. Right? Push, 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 push. And then you got a doctor that's doing this on the side. They don't, don't live by a schedule, Alvy's professional life when right. it comes to that, right? And so it didn't get done. And so I looked at my dad. My dad was a carver. My dad was a carver. My wife had carved. I never had carved before. 
I looked at him and, I, and this was like in the spring of 2002. And I said, uh, we're working. And I looked at my dad, I said, I think I'm done. He said, what do you mean? I said, uh, my passion's not here. It's in making stuff. I went, so I said, uh, I'm gonna go home and start carving a goose decoy. He goes, okay. So I called Matthews on the, on the drive home. I said, uh, I wanna come work for you full time. He goes, okay. How much you want to make? I told him. He said, you're stupid. You could have made way more money than that. Really? <laughs> yeah, that's what he told me. I, so, said, I said, yeah, I get it, but I want to make a royalty off stuff. And so that's how we set it up. And, he, and he's, so. We negotiated a deal on the drive from the job site to my shop to carve a decoy for green headgear. For we, on a royalty deal? On a royalty deal and, with, and my salary. And by the time I got home, we had the deal negotiated on the phone. I went in there and started carving on a decoy. So did you, did at that time, do you know your worth to a company like Avery? Are, I have are no you, idea. Are you don't, just like, don't really care. You just, was, you just wanted to start again. You yeah, just, wanted to just jump. don't really care. Get out of the tractor. Yep. Get out of the excavator. I just want to go do something that I would love to do. You know, because I, I would do it for free if I could make ends meet. You know what right. I mean? So if yeah. I can make some money, it's, it's even better, right? So this, so now you are in a truck. It's like May of 2002. You, you cut a deal in 2002. Yep. You've already shipped your first load of, of ground blinds of the finisher blind. In the fall. And that yep. had your name on it. <coughs> it At did. that time, did it? Fred Sings finisher. Uh, Where did they end did. up putting it on? On the seat. On it? Yep. It was, in, it was on the seat. They yep. ended up putting on it sometime, yep. I remember. Yep. So now now the decoys come next, but you're not done in the in the ground blind game. You continue to Yeah, we made the uh, uh, Power Hunter, the, I made design, which is the best a, ground blind of all time. I designed the Power Hunter, and we put Kelly Power's name on it. How many geese did you and I kill together in a Power Hunter, man? When we would bury Wait, him. I remember one time, I, w- I wish everybody listening to this podcast could see this because it was freaking. Remember the Hill of 10,000? Yeah. It was more like 20, yeah. but we undersold it, right? Yeah. Well, we called it so, the Hill of 5,000 on the DVD. I was think. it? Yeah. And that was, I, yeah, that I was can't Saskatchewan. Remember. But it was twice what we said. So we used to dig ground blinds in. So I, Chad, his workhorse, I gave him a shovel. I said, dig these ground blinds in, right? So we set, I don't know, three, 400 goose decoys. Remember we had uh, guys from Ducks Unlimited? Oh, yeah, we yeah, had yeah. Matt Young. Matt Young, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so Belding's over there digging. <clears throat> and I'm like, you got them things almost done. And I go over there. You could put a tank in those holes you dug. You remember? <laughs> yeah. The mound of dirt. I was like, we need a freaking end loader to get this dirt. <laughs> Everything we gained by digging a hole, we just lost with these mounds of dirt, right? And I'm over there chewing Chad's ass out, man. I'm like, what are you doing, man? Yeah, well, it was like my I was like, time. he was standing to his waist in the last hole. I was like, I think it's kind of deep. And so I, I said, you said a pit blind, Freddie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Blind. So we had these big holes, and Belding's car is still in the decoys. Remember you had that little white rental? Oh, Remember yeah. Remember we used for the Scoutmobile? Uh-huh. And uh, I said, go, go park the car, man. It's getting late. You could hear him coming off the river. So Chad... You ripped down there and parked the car, man. I'm filling the, the holes in. Missed the first flock, and Matt Young that follows was, me. That was the flock. Yeah, that was the flock. And that we, was and we the had flock. to lie on our stomachs and watch it. I've been, I've been goose hunting a long time, 30, 40, 40 years, right? That was the biggest flock I ever had I know, come in. We watched land. it from our bellies. Yeah, you guys didn't make it back. And they come in, and I'm just looking, and they just – I don't – somebody had to jump the roost or whatever because they all come in one wide, man, yeah. right in the hole. Unreal. It was unreal. We watched it all. Yeah. I wish I'd have had an iPhone back then. I could have filmed it from it a distance. Badass. But that, but then, that, but then they went and they still kept coming. Oh there yeah. There was other geese that kept Yeah, yeah. Coming. But that first flock was lights out. Yeah, bro. the flock of a lifetime. Flock. So, so now you. It, so by by 2005, you're solidified now as the goose leader and the decoy. Now yeah. So we went from uh, 
in, in two, I, I know the exact dollar amount and I won't, I won't disclose that, but here's what I will tell you. And, uh, so we started making goo- duck, duck, duck and goose decoys in 2002. Avery did well, greenhead gear. And by 2004, cause I spent uh, 2004 is when I spent 153 or two days in China. We shipped 463 or 65 40 foot containers of decoys. Wow. Just just took over. Yeah, we were by far number one in selling decoys at that point, Greenhead Gear. Like crazy. Crazy. Yeah. When you're making twenty five thousand finished decoys per day. And, seven days. And a that's week. when Greenhead Gear became GHG because before it was a Walmart company. Yeah, yeah. So uh hey, remember, we, you remember Jason Thompson Thompson? Oh yeah. Him and I made that because here's how we come up with it. it was always green head gear, right? So that's when the chat room started coming out. People yeah. would abbreviate, just put GHG. So green head gear became GHD by people typing on chat rooms. <coughs> on, the, on the forums. And, huh? and, and we were somewhat of a goose company. Uh, but in the green head gear, obviously green head, but it had a duck. Remember the duck logo and all yeah. that stuff? And Matthew's like, dude, we got to come up with a new logo. So Jason Thompson and I... I said, how about we just go GHD? He said, that's what, exactly what I'm thinking. So him and I sat back at his computer and made the GHD logo. Really? Yeah. And that's, and that's really what was the heyday of Avery. And yeah, that, was the, that was where, that's when I think, you know, before Avian X, this is when, like, you, I know you had some success in competition calling, but now your DVD series is out. And not only a DVD series, you're literally hunting out of blinds that you designed, over decoys that you're yeah, carving. That's really cool. And now you're in China and you're making sure that the paint and the texture and everything in the everything's perfect in the process before you ship. Now this is when your head's got to be going, wow. I Three years ago, I was like an excavator, a, and now look at what's dude, going on. Dude, it was on. a dream, man. It really was. Any regrets? Was, any regrets of that time? No, no. No, no, no. Happiest time of my life, for sure. 100%. Of all time. Yep. Even though, even though you weren't the boss... You were you were setting yourself apart as like, look what Freddie's doing. He's yeah, like, that's, I, that's one thing that Alan and Tom. Uh, I, I will say one thing about Tom: people love him or hate him, whatever. And, and I've been on both sides of that fence. Me too. Sometimes within ten minutes of each other. But the, the the one thing that I'll say about him is he never said no. 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 After all the shit, after all the fights, after all the arguments. When people ask me about Tom Matthews, I mean, that guy would come, I mean, he did things to me that, that I was just like, whoa. And to this day, when people ask me, you're like, what kind of guy? I just go, genius. Like, the guy yeah, was on a different smart, level, man. man. He taught me level. so much about business. That's how I got my business smarts. He's so smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understood. it, And I could read him like a book. I could look at him. I knew exactly what he was thinking. You know what I mean? And he, he taught me a lot about business. Uh, taught me some wrong things to do. Yeah. <laughs> he taught me a lot of things that were 100% positive, you know. And uh, I owe a lot to him, a lot, a lot to Avery Greenhead Gear and having that ability because they, you know, they were bankrolling it, right? It was just like my ideas and my work, but they were bankrolling it, and they never said no, you know. And you think about the people. You write the people's name. There's, a lot of them are still there today. But if you look at the people that we were associated with, they were the very best. Not only the sales, design, post staff, relationships. We were just think of the game. The game got revolutionized. I mean, from the from the photography to the marketing to the pretty badass. I mean, the Max catalog. Remember that with. I remember, and I, I have it in a frame in my house. It's one of my pride and joys. Is you're on the top (laughs) in a finisher with a quote. I'm in the middle 
with in a power hunter with a quote. That was when you were known as Chaz. Chaz, yeah. With a Z. And, but think about like you got your start there, and then I meet you. You and you bring me on the road, and then I start taking pride. I remember being in, in Modesto, California at Auto Life. We were going over to Tom Lucas Jr.'s house, you and I. And that's when we threw that girl in the pool with the, your brother and I. Yeah. Remember she had the cell phone? Oh, God. <laughs> but when we were on our way there, if you remember this, Freddie, we got a phone call, and it was Matthews, and you're just on the phone, and he's, and at the very end of the conversation, he goes, and tell F and Belding that I'll get him some decoys too. And I remember that day like it was yesterday. And that's yeah. when I started getting all my greenhead gears. And then I would go out and get all this photography with <coughs> with mountains in the background. Yeah, totally and Tom different. would go nuts for that shit. Yeah. Oh my God, I need more Colorado. I need more Nevada. Yeah. So then I started taking pride in ownership and Avery. Like, man, I love this freaking lifestyle. Yeah. And I know you got to go. We got to end this. But here's what I, I'd like to pick up where we left off because I really want to get into what I did with you at that time. That's when yep. we really started working. Yep. We went from competition call. I competed in 2005 in the Invitational in Fort Collins and came really close to, yeah. I was right there, Big Sean and Kelly and all those guys, and Hunter was in it and Scott Trinan. And then, you know, they kept evolving into us filming more. And then the foul life comes, and then we're still filming together. Yep. And then, but all of that, all of those Avery days and that inspiration got you going in, in a big way to where you break off and start, what AV was your livelihood yeah. and what made you who you are now with freaking AV and X yeah. and zinc calls. Right. And, and then I break off and do some shit on my own. Right. I want to pick up someday, even if I got to fly to Ohio, because I heard a rumor. I think I heard the rumor from you, so it might not be a rumor. You, you you own a pizza restaurant now? Yeah, my wife does. I'm the maintenance man. <laughs> You're the maintenance yeah, 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 yeah. The I don't own nothing, right? Are you are you tossing dough or anything? No, oh, I ha I do sometimes. I'm I am the bona fide maintenance man. But you look like you're in she shape. You it. look like you're not eating many carbs you, right now, or what? No, I, I started doing keto. I started doing carnivore. I did the whole thirty diet. I found out I was kind of allergic to bread, certain foods, pastas and breads and sugars or whatever. So then I started doing, uh, I did keto or I did carnivore and then keto. So I'm a kind of, I'm kind of a hybrid between carnivore and keto. Yeah, I try yeah. to do, I try to do my best to stay on it. And then you come down south and the first thing I want to eat it's is It's just hard when you travel, you know so what I mean? Hard. I could eat, I, so when I'm home, I eat a, at least one ribeye a day. Yeah. You know I'm what clean. Mean? It's clean. You get in a routine. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you can I work way, out, you got gym. I, I, what did it for me was my wife fighting cancer, not Hodgkin's yeah. lymphoma. So... When you see someone you love so much have that kind of issue, is you're a hospital, and you see a bunch of people in there that have the same issues, but they're not strong enough to make it. You just look at them like, man, probably ain't gonna make it. These people are not in good enough physical uh, shape to have a fight of the life, right? Yeah. So I just put myself in that position. It's like, man, if something happens to me, I want to be ready in to good roll. shape. You right? gotta be. I mean, you yeah. got a lot of riding on it. So Dawn is healthy now yes yeah, she she's owns a pizza restaurant yep she's uh six months came because without free. without her you're nothing without, no, no, i no. mean she supported That's, you through yeah, all yeah, this 100%. Shit. a wife living in america she's, 154 uh, days her husband you might as well be a soldier yeah you yeah know, yeah, you yeah. Might as well be on the point. I, I tell everybody it's 100 i i made the phone ring but she's the one that answered it yeah. and that's just the way always and partner. supported you 100 percent yep partner and she's awesome yeah so it. we're gonna we gotta continue this guy yeah yeah because i know you got business to do we got this is show to start. Yeah, yeah. We'll do part two. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Appreciate you, man. That was Fred Zink. My mentor got me where I am today. Thank you, Freddie Zink. This has been another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Tom, hit that button, please. This song is called My Foul Life by 2AM Logic. Thank you all very much.